1972, my eldest sister and her husband came home to Toowoomba for Christmas. At the end of her visit, she randomly took a couple of us kids out to the local pound where we got ourselves our first family cat. I think it was a kind of a feline fuck you she wanted to leave behind. Anyway, this cat was full of character, an impeccably groomed ginger and white tabby. He seemed kind of vain and aloof, with a sense of superiority that went beyond his circumstances. We guessed he was already quite old, judging by the various battle scars from street fighting. And on the drive home in my brother-in-law's orange Holden Monaro, I can remember the cat going completely feral, clawing at the windows, desperate to get away from us. So when my sister turned to the back seat and asked, what should we call him? I instantly suggested Mick, after our father. For me, it was an obvious choice, made without any malice. The cat was old, cranky, self-obsessed and battle-scarred. If this cat had loved a punt, I wouldn't have been the least surprised. And although Dad was a bit flummoxed by the misappropriation of his name, I think he was also a little flattered. You see, we'd shown him a portrait of himself, one that he'd never truly recognised before. It was something we did that showed Dad who he was. Which brings me to my next guest, Tom, whose son's actions not only showed lion-hearted courage, but revealed to him characteristics he hadn't previously recognised in himself. Welcome to my fucked up family. Tom Teves, welcome to uh, My Fucked Up Family. Thank you. I'm always interested in how people respond to, to fucked up family situations. And in this case, your family um, really had one inflicted upon it, Tom. So uh, I want to get straight into it. And I want to start with you telling me, if you could, about your son, Alex. And, and just tell us, what was, he, what was he like growing up? Uh, Alex... Um... Every parent says their kid was a terrific kid, and Alex was a very terrific kid. But like all kids, you know, he he, he got into mischief and did different things. But he was never the main attraction. I don't think there was anyone who ever disliked Alex. I'm sure there's people who didn't love him, but I, you know, there's people that incite, you know, these these emotional things about people. But Alex was just somebody, he just loved, he loved people. He loved to be around different types of people and try to get them together. I think Alex loved to take two different, I I mean, to put it in American political landscape. Now, Alex probably would have loved to take a Trump person and a Biden person, put them in a room and figure out a way to make them see eye to eye on whatever subject that they couldn't possibly see eye to eye on. And that was just Alex. He just, he, he loved to, you know, make people get along. He was also uh, super physically fit for, um, you know, a five ten kid. Uh, I can remember one of his friends telling me a story of they were at, um, Alex had moved to uh, get his, his his graduate degree in up to Denver, Colorado, and there's a thing called Denver. Obviously, is a city that has a lot of uh, craft breweries. In fact, I would say Denver and San Diego are probably the birthplaces of craft brewery. Denver being probably really the the, the most prominent one. 
And in Denver, they have a thing called the um, is it the American Beer Festival, I think it's called. I've gone to it once or twice. But, and Alex was there with his friends, and his one buddy was from college. And, he's, you know, you're talking about now a giant um, convention center that its sole purpose is to give people tastes of beer, mm-hmm. which sounds innocuous enough until you realize there's probably 1,200 breweries. So in the course of an evening, that can be 1,200 quote-unquote tastes of beer, <laughs> which can lead to a, um, a unique situation <laughs> just thinking about getting into the restroom. So, you know, it can be a very volatile situation. And his one friend is a really skinny kid. Uh, nice, nice. They're, they're men now. It's, I hate to call them kids, but you know. Um, and they were wearing their their University of Arizona um, shirts, or one of them was, and yeah. And another kid, I think from Boulder, the University of Colorado Boulder, started to give him um, Alex's buddy a hard time. And Alex's buddy again was probably all of. If he was 150 pounds, that's probably he's probably going to get mad because I gave him too much weight. <laughs> so he wasn't a formidable foe, and this other kid would give him a hard time. And Alex was a state champion wrestler, and he went up and he looked at the kid, and he said, why don't we all just get along? And he hugged the kid. But he hugged the kid hard enough for the kid to realize it's probably just good to let this go. <laughs> And that's how it was, right? He, he was not afraid of anything. Yeah. At the same time, he had no desire then to see people get along and, quite frankly, not be in the limelight. Alex is, would, would love to get people together and talk and have fun with different people from different groups and then just kind of drift back into the background and watch people enjoy themselves. He would love to do stuff like that, but at the same time, he loved to play guitar, and he had just gotten his master's degree in psychology because you know he wanted to. He just wanted to help people. Was he popular with the ladies, Tom? As many friends and uh, people that Alex knew, and as many social contacts he had, I wouldn't say he had the greatest luck with women and it was almost the uh the idea that he everybody loved him as a friend you know right okay <laughs> it everybody loved loved having him around but you, you know it's not the guy that it wasn't the guy you go to the prom with in fact uh <laughs> he went to the prom with his best friend who was a male so i mean they they were <laughs> it was not what you think. They were just doing it because they wanted to go to the prom. But he did eventually find himself a girlfriend named Amanda, who he was very fond of. You know, he he really, really loved Amanda. And he had, you know, we had talked about, um, you know, he was going to ask her to marry him. Tell us then, thank you for that little sort of the background, Tom. So tell us then about your family trip to Hawaii then in 2012. Oh, yeah. Well, we were just, we literally were just going on vacation and, um, we had flown in the night before and I had, I had a little bit more work to do before I was actually going to get to enjoy the vacation. So I had gotten up probably about 
4 o'clock in the morning to get on a couple conference calls because of the time difference in Hawaii versus, you know, the East Coast of the U.S. or the West Coast of the U.S. It's three hours difference from the West Coast and six hours difference from the East Coast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I my phone rang, and I didn't recognize the number, and I was already on a call with some folks, so I just, you know, ignored it. And kept doing it, and the phone rang again. And one of the principals that was going to be on the call with me wasn't on yet. And I just said, you know, guys, this call, this person I don't know has now called me twice. The number I don't know. Let me at least pick it up, and I'll jump right back on the call. And you know, basically picked it up to Amanda, screaming that uh, they had gone to a movie, The Dark Knight Rises. Um, you know that there had been a shooting. And, you know, she was okay, fortunately, but they couldn't find Alex, uh, which made me pretty uncomfortable because knowing Alex the way I do, there's no way he would have gotten separated from Amanda during a shooting. I just, in my heart, I knew, you know, he was my firstborn son. I, I knew there was no way he would allow her not to be under his care, so to speak, in that type of environment. So it gave me a really bad feeling right from the start. So I asked her, you know, where where was he? She said, we've looked, we can't find him, but they dragged me out. I tried to stop them, but they dragged me out. And I said, who dragged you out? She said, well, when, when when the shooting stopped for a couple of seconds, the other people dragged me out. I didn't want to leave them, but they made me leave them. So then I asked her, you know, Amanda, what, did he get shot? And she said, yes, I think he did. And I said, well, was he bleeding? Did you have any of his blood on you? And she broke down sobbing and said, yes, a lot. And as soon as she said that, I knew he was dead. And don't ask me why, but I did, just because I know Alex and I knew he would get off the ground if he could. Um, so, you know, we, we then spent probably the next six hours trying to call different hospitals to try to find them, tried to call the police station. And, and in retrospect, you couldn't get anybody on the phone, but I'm not, when you found out the severity of what happened, there was, 12 dead, 70 injured. It got so bad that the police, and at least the United States, this is completely outside of protocol, started to drive the wounded to the hospital in the backs of police cars because uh, they ran out of ambulances and they couldn't, the ones that were coming back, there was such a commotion they couldn't get to the theater because of all the, insanity that was in the parking lot surrounding it yeah so um we actually never got to see him again well that's just so so terrible so so this is as you say it it happened at after midnight at a midnight screening of the film uh in the movie cinema so it's probably 5 a.m by this stage in hawaii that you've had this terrible, terrible phone call from um, Alex's girlfriend, who's clearly hysterical, and she she wasn't physically injured. 
No, she was not physically injured, but obviously, to this day, she still has a lot of emotional scars. Oh, of course, of course. And did did she tell you at, at that point anything that Alex, uh, what Alex had done in the course of that, or was she just still too shocked? We really didn't get much information from her for probably the next six or eight hours. Um and Karen and I spent all that time trying to find him in the hospitals. The, to say that we had a stroke of luck would be a little bit, probably the wrong term, but it just so happened that my wife's sister and her husband were in Denver for a convention. And they actually were the last people to see Alex. They saw him. They had dinner with him the night before with Amanda. So we had them running around from hospital to hospital to try to find him. Um, to no avail, obviously, because he was in the theater. Um, and it, it was just complete chaos. At one point, the, uh, the police had called me and said that, you know, probably about 4 o'clock, that four o'clock Hawaii time yeah. that, you know, the, your son is, is murdered. Um, so, you know, you need to come to Denver. So we were spending time trying to figure out how to get off Hawaii because you can't just leave. And we weren't scheduled to leave for another week. Um, and during the course of that time, after that call, I got another call from somebody and said, we have great news for you. You know, your son isn't on any of the, uh, any of the missing lists or any of the people in the hospital, so he must be okay. And unfortunately, my wife heard that, and I knew it had to be wrong because I talked to the the detectives there was no doubt in my mind honestly there was no doubt in my mind as soon as amanda said alex didn't get off the floor um but you know 10 hours later there was no doubt in my mind but it started to give my wife a little hope so then i immediately had to call the detective back fortunately he had given me his number and he said mr teebs your son is dead i don't know who called you um but your son is dead so there was a lot of there was a lot of who knows what, um, but it was it was completely insane. And yeah. the reality of the situation is to try to get any information from the news, to try to turn on, you know, whatever network you had. All we saw over and over again was pictures of the murderer and pictures of his booby trapped apartment. There was absolutely no no mention of the victims, but that, that perspective didn't change as time went by. It was all about the murderer. It was all about what an anti-hero he was. And of course, with Batman being the movie and it flowed right into the, to their narrative. It took us, I don't know. We finally got uh, American airlines to put me on a plane um, and we flew back to Phoenix first because we had to drop the kids off, my Alex's younger brothers, and then just transferred up to another plane to go to Denver 
where we met some folks on, you know, how to retrieve his body and things like no parent really ever needs to learn how to do is how to retrieve your child's body from the morgue. But still, it was an insane circus, the amount of media that were actually in and around the theater. Um, and all you heard about was the murderer, the murderer, the murderer. Nothing about my son. Nothing about the other victims, except in the context of how bad the carnage was. Yeah. And Karen and I realized at that point there was something seriously wrong with what was going on. And, you know, once we started doing research, we realized that it's, it's been wrong for a long time. Well, look, that's what I was going to ask you, Tom, because the story is just so devastatingly sad. But tragically, you weren't the first parents to find themselves in that situation, yet your response to it was quite different, and you did something quite quickly after that. So tell us about what triggered you to then say, okay, enough is enough, we're going to try and change this. Well, originally when we first went there and we realized, because remember we had from 4.30 in the morning Hawaii time until 11.30 p.m. when the plane took off. So we had the Internet and we had the television news, and all you could see is pictures of this coward just everywhere you looked on any electronic media. And I don't want to say I thought about it exactly then, but it became clear to me that however the media was dealing with this, it wasn't helpful. It gave me absolutely no information to help my son or any other people, even if you had found um, your child, like if your child had been in the theater but got out, out un, unharmed and kind of a happy, sad story, sad for me, but happy for this woman. Um, that Sunday, Karen and I um, went to church at about 7 o'clock in the morning, and a priest who we ended up becoming and we didn't know where we were. We were in the middle of Denver, right? I mean, that's not where, it's not where we're from, right? But, you know, looked on the Internet and found the closest church and said, well, let's go at 7 a.m. so that, you know, because we're Catholic, you go to church every Sunday, right? And God knows we needed God then. You know, we saw this priest, and he said to my wife, isn't it a beautiful day, right? And my wife just completely broke down. But so he said to us, could you sit over here? Before, because before, he was greeting the uh, the people, and he knew full well what had happened. So we sat on this bench, and this woman saw us, and she said, "Are you waiting to speak to Father?" And we said, "Yes." And she said, "Well, I have to speak to him first because my son was in the theater." And I said, "Is he okay?" And she said, "Yeah, he got out." And I said, "Okay, um, well, that's that's great." And she didn't. She just sat down next to us. And when the priest came up, she was obviously a prisoner, and we were visitors. And she started to talk to him about it. And he looked at her, and he said, and he knew her name, and I forget her name at this point. And he said, I, I really want to talk to you, but these two people lost their child. 
and you could see it on her face, like almost a sense of relief that she was so freaked out that her son escaped this. But now, because there was this other person who had it worse, I guess, yeah. and I'm sorry to laugh, but it's just, you know, the it's not funny, but it is, uh, I, I guess, uh, the juxtaposition of it is interesting. Um, actually made her to just stand up and walk into church like she got out okay. You know, she didn't need to talk to the priest. We needed him more. So it's, there was no way that the media was helping anybody yeah. find out anything. It, it was just, it was bizarre. And we ended up, I, I, I tried to keep my family away from the media until... I mean, literally, they found my sister in New Jersey and my my mother's, you know, an older woman at that point. God rest her soul, she's since passed. But um, they're, they're trying to find them. And my, my family's calling me and saying, they're, you know, the, the news is camped out by our house and they want to talk to us. And then I see quotes of my sister saying things that I know she would never say. So I called her and she said, I, I didn't say that. So the media just started making things up. So I finally said to Karen, you know, we're, we're going to need to go do something about this because I don't want the wrong information yet now. But one of the things that I said was, look, I'm not going to go on if you're going to show this coward, which in retrospect might've been the wrong thing. So we ended up on a, a few different shows and one of them was Anderson Cooper. And I said to Anderson Cooper, I said, you know, is it possible for you guys to go for 12 seconds without mentioning this coward's name? Cause you're going to talk to me about my son and what he's like. And then two minutes later, you're going to, sh- you're going to flip back to turning this, this thing into an anti-hero. And that's not what we should be focused on. And, the more I thought about it, the more I thought I was right. And that's why Karen and I said, you know what? When we get back, we can either sit in the corner and cry, or we can try to figure this out and make things better. And, you know, that's what we did. And what we found out from the research that we did was just about every single random mass shooter, they have one common thread because whenever you hear the media focusing on these cowards what they want they say is well if we don't do the research we're never going to know why they did it well i can tell you i've done the research and there's only one thing they all have in common and that's that every one of them wants to be famous they may have other ancillary motivations but every one of them wants to be famous and you could say to me how do you know that i can go down a list of probably 20 of the most infamous mass shooters in the u.s and around the world quite frankly over the last 10 years every one of them will tell you that the one that i think is most impactful is there was a, a, a shooter in the Umpqua Community College who wrote on his blog before he went to the college and killed 10 people, 
And I quote, I've noticed that so many people like him, and he was talking about another mass murderer, are all alone and unknown, yet when they spill a little blood, the whole world knows who they are. A man who was known by no one is now known by everyone. His face splashed across every screen, his name across the lips of every person on the planet, all in the course of one day. Seems like the more people you kill, the more you're in the limelight. So given what you discovered through your research about these people, what is it that you and Karen decided to do? We decided that it was time that somebody who had unfortunately the capital to be listened to, because psychiatrists have been saying this for a while. Yeah, yeah. But no one, no one listened to him because, you know, the one thing that you had to listen, you didn't have to, but was compelling, and probably the same reason we're talking right now is, I come with something that I would love with every ounce of my soul and every, every including my life, I would give to get rid of it. But I come with the capital of, I'm the father of a murdered son who died a hero, right? So, you know, we we then launched what we called No Notoriety. And that, it's, it's based on the journalistic principle that says to minimize harm and not become part of the story. I think we they, the, the media has to recognize that the prospect of infamy, as we said, is one of, if not the single greatest motivating factor. Now, what you get is the journalists, again, say, well, we have to report the facts so we can figure out why they did it so it doesn't happen again. Well, there's nothing that says you can't report the facts. You can talk about the mindset, the demographic, the motivational profile, but you don't have to add complementary color. So unless they're at large, there's no upside to showing their picture. Other than you're trying to sell newspapers or clicks or ratings. And what we say is, you know, limit the name to once per piece. Did you meet any resistance to your program or? <laughs> yes. Right, in a, a word. lot of resistance. Why? It's very emotional yeah. in this country. Yeah. And there's no one who goes into a theater or a grammar school and shoots a whole bunch of people that isn't sick from a mental health perspective. The gun gives you the method. Being mentally ill is why you do it. But the third leg of the stool, if you will, the motivation and the call to action is because you want notoriety. Yeah. And we looked at it and said, if we could put this into effect overnight, the single most powerful motivation goes away. It's no longer there. And it seemed to me at the time that this was a no-brainer. Of course the media would do this. Let me tell you, it was not that simple. We had countless, countless, countless conversations and interviews and television interviews, print interviews, and every one of them came down to a debate. And it was interesting because as we were going through this, we would hit two different end results. In the beginning, we got the second one the most, 
But the one we get the most now, and the one I think that's that's becoming prevalent, is people start to come around and realize what you're saying isn't censorship. Yeah, it's common sense. And I, I can remember being in a conversation with someone um, from Yahoo News, and about halfway in, he stopped because it was getting a little contentious, and he stopped. And he looked at me, and you could see the expression on his face completely changed. And he said, there's not a damn thing in this for you, is there? And I just laughed at him, and I said, no. I said, you know, my son's already dead, so it's not going to bring him back. What I'm trying to do is save your child. And if you go on our website, which is something, one of the other things that changes the media people's minds. I asked every one of them a couple questions, but this one they, they, they never get right. If you go on our website, nonotoriety.com, what's the one thing that's different than any other website fighting for a single-purpose cause? And you probably haven't been on the website. No, no, no. I've been on but the, the website. I've been on the web. Were... I've been on the website. So, so don't tell me. Don't tell so, me. I'm just trying so to. So what's different? What's different than every other website? Uh, I'm putting you on the spot. You, you are. You are. But I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. You, well, you're not asking for money. You're... That's exactly right. All we're right. not asking for money. There's no other website that you'll go on that doesn't want you to donate. I don't want your money. I don't need your money. Well, if you want to give me money, let me reflect. <laughs> I'm willing to take it, but not for this endeavor. This endeavor is purely to save people's lives, and it's about public safety. So the interesting thing is, so you, I get that much more. I get that response now, and I think we've moved the needle. Nowhere near as fast as I thought we would, but we have moved the needle to where you can see the difference. I mean, you probably saw a prime minister of New Zealand during the Christ, after the Christchurch shootings literally talked about no notoriety. Yeah. Um, the fact is, this little tiny organization that's just me and my wife, funded by no one but us, is getting the prime minister of New Zealand to agree with it. That's no testament to us. What that is, is that's the testament that this is a no-brainer idea yeah. that hurts no one. Yeah. But but getting back to my question, though, tell us why there's the resistance from these media organizations to, to not do what no notoriety is asking. What's the root of all evil? Right? It's money. They want clicks. They want they want you to watch. They want you to listen. They want you to click. They want to generate revenue. Because yeah. the one group of people, I've talked to probably 400 or so plus major media people, and the one group that will not talk to me is the people that run the business, the editors, the publishers, 
they all want to get involved in the conversation because they know they can't win the conversation. You talk about the fact that you've got these tragic credentials um, because of Alex's death, and it, it is so true. It, you're, you're really speaking from an unfortunate position of authority. And you do call for the responsibility of producers and consumers of media to remove the reward for notoriety. And so I guess you talk about trying to get access to the executives of news organisations, but I guess failing that, what is it that you your message would be to consumers about what they can do to try and change the behaviour of these news organisations? But to me, it's very simple. If you see any media outlet gratuitously using the names and images of the shooters, stop watching, listening, clicking, liking, sharing, stop. Write to the producers, the editors, and the station managers, and hopefully the CEOs. Hell, blow up their email if you can. Yeah. And as importantly, if you see gratuitous news coverage, Take note of who advertises directly after that and blow up that CEO's email. You could be that true hero because if you changed what you did, you wouldn't know the person you saved or whose life you saved because it wouldn't happen. Yeah. And that's what needs to happen. There is no downside to this. And usually the only time anybody calls me is after there's a mass shooting. Why not talk to me ahead of time? Let's put some protocols in place and then let's start stopping these shootings. You talk about how the media come and contact you after a, after a mass shooting. Do you actually get nervous that you're being dragged into that cycle of repetition? Um... Again, I think I, I, I made this statement when we started that I, when, when we were at the murders, you know, in Denver picking up Alex's body, and we chose not to talk to outlets that wouldn't agree that they were not going to bookend our interview with pictures of the murder. And I thought that, in retrospect, that was wrong. You, you can't get you have to get the message out because it has to get the people. I mean, I was asked to do a TED talk and believe me, I'm not TED talk material. <laughs> Those are really <laughs> learned, eloquent people. Um, I, I am neither. Right. But, but essentially the goal is to become irrelevant. Like my goal is to no one know who I am, it, but I don't see how staying silent will fix it. I think in any situation, and I think one, I think it was absolutely Martin Luther King who said, I'm not scared of the people who burn crosses on my front lawn. I'm scared of the people who see it, don't agree with it, but don't say anything. Yeah. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to, you know, we have to stand up. And remember, this is not my job, right? I don't get paid for it. I actually pay to do it. Um, but if we, if somebody doesn't try, who's gonna, you know? So, yeah, I'm not in love with it. But 
what am I supposed to do? Not try to save your child? How could I not do that? Dom, you started off our chat today by, by telling us, uh, painting a picture of, of who Alex was and, and what he was like. And look, I don't think anything illustrates the sort of person that Alex was more than uh, his actions that night in the movie theatre. So to end our conversation, I thought it would only be appropriate that you tell us a little bit more about that. We call Alex a true hero, and I didn't make that up. Somebody sent that to us. But he is because he was on the ground. His girlfriend froze in her seat. He got back up and dragged her down so that she could live. And during the course of that, got hit by a armor-piercing bullet in the forehead, in his left temple. Basically a random bullet because he was in the, the third to the last row of the theater. But, you know, AR-15s, no, no. You know, you spray them like they're a garden hose. So we ended up, because he grew up in New Jersey and then we moved to Arizona, we ended up having to have two separate funerals for him. And I think his first funeral had 1,200 people and his second funeral had 1,500 people. So I think that's a testament to the kid and all the people he touched. Definitely, definitely. So I guess just, just one final question, and it's, uh, it's probably a really stupid question, but do you ever wish that uh, Alex hadn't been so courageous? <laughs> Every day. Every day, except I know my son. Had he not done what he did and something happened to Amanda, he would have died in a much more tragic way because he could have never lived with himself. Quite honestly, he did the right thing. I'm proud of him that he did it. And yeah, every day I wish he didn't. And, you know, because that's probably, I'm not a hero. I'm probably a bit of a coward, and he was not. Well, uh... Probably not the answer you wanted to hear, but it's the truth. No, it's a great answer. It's a great answer. And I think, you know, I mean, who knows... Uh, if any of us are heroes, uh, um, but he, no, it's not an opportunity, but he certainly was put in a situation where he could prove it. And, um, you know, he, he probably got it from you, Tom. Oh, I, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know, because I think what you're doing is incredibly heroic. So I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I can so appreciate how you really must wish that you never had to talk like this. So I thank you and I encourage everyone to go and uh, check out your, your website, notoriety.com. And I think don't click, don't listen, don't watch is a really powerful, strong, simple message. Thank you. And like I said, hopefully uh, in the near future, the uh, media will wake up, adopt the right rules, and I can, I can actually drift off into it anonymity I hope so I really hope so thank you so much Tom 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of My Fucked Up Family enough to subscribe, share or like. And remember, if you have your own fucked up family story you'd like to share, contact us through our Facebook page. Until next time on My Fucked Up Family.